we're gonna we're gonna look briefly at some because we need to define some terms here, and I'm just gonna use a soil test to to uh, illustrate those terms from, um, and then we're gonna move on to the individual elements. We're gonna look at their look at them as individual elements in the next couple hours. Is what we'll be covering this here. Uh, so, who had questions? I asked to ask them again. Oh, let's hang on on that one. Um, the plants that grow in the, in the soil. The weeds. Oh, yeah. Somebody had asked, the question was, what, what books are there available that help you to understand, based on what's growing there, what kind of conditions you have? There are three books that I know of. Um, one is called Weeds Control Without Poisons by Charles Walters. Weeds Control Without Poisons by Charles Walters. And then there is, um, I'm trying to remember to get these titles, so I don't want to mix them up. Uh, Weeds and What They Tell by J.L. McCammon. That's M McCammon, M-C, uh, I think it's a M-C capital C, A-M-M-E-N, I think it's two M's. You know, J.L. McCammon. Um, and then there's one, uh, it's by Aaron, Hud uh, Aaron Fried Pfeiffer. Uh, the bionet, biodynamic fame. Uh, it's uh, it's the most esoteric of it, and so I don't lean on that one too heavily. But I'm trying to. It's called Weeds. Uh, I can never remember the title of that. But if you look at look up a book on weeds, it's by him. It's it's it starts with weeds. Um, like I said, I don't use that book a lot because there's a lot of esoteric stuff in it, and I get most of what I the value out of the other two books. Uh, weeds, guardians of the soil. Guardians of the soil. All right, just came back to me. Was there an Adventist The question was: Was there an Adventist man who went around teaching about these things? I don't know. Uh, I don't. You know, offhand, could it could have been? Could have been. I don't know to to identify identify who it was, but it could have been. Um, what was your, didn't you have a question you were asking before? The, the yeah, my question was, how often should you test your soil and how far apart should your test be? Like, you have a farm with a lot of you test every garden, you're going to Okay, so we might as well go ahead and answer this question now. The question is, um, how often, if you're going to test your soil, how often should you do it? And how should you determine how many soil tests to take and those type of things? Uh, the, way, the way that I do it, is that I, I recommend people at least, it, it takes three to five years to really get a good handle on what's going on and to really start moving things where you want them to be. Uh, depending on the condition, sometimes it can take longer than that and the resources available, sometimes it can take less than that. Uh, but my experience has been that it really usually takes at least two to three years before you really begin to have an understanding of what's going on with your soil. The reason for that is some clays um, actually trap mineral nutrients between them. It causes them to collapse, and we're going to look at that in just a minute here. And when you actually open that soil back up, uh, it releases that, and things get worse before they get better. And you can, you can almost predict that if you know where the soil, what, what location a person is working with. If they're young, expandable clays, 
and the parent material is a granitic, you know, granite crust, or there's certain other ones, you can almost predict that they're going to have high magnesium levels trapped in the, between the clays. And when you open it up, it's going to release it and the number will go up before it goes down. Um, so that's one of them. Sometimes it takes a couple, three years because the environmental influences are a little bit different. And so you might take your, your, your soil test from a little bit different areas. They're in the same, you know, overall area. And so you can have a little bit of variability as a result of that. So over a couple, three years, you kind of nail down what, what it really is. Um, there's a few other variables, but so I, I encourage people to take it for people to take a test annually for at least three to five years. Once you get it, you know, the circumstances may not warrant it going that long. And usually I tell, I tell growers, you know, okay, well, you don't really need to test this every year. We can kind of tell what you're going to need to do for a couple of years. And I don't try to take money from people. I just try, I try to, because I have people that say, well, I should do this and do that. And everything. They say, no, you don't need to do that. I said, I, I said, after they give me the criteria, I said, one test will work. You don't need 10 of them. Um, but another factor that comes into play is how intensively you're growing. You know, if you're really growing intensively and you're growing high value things, I grow intensively and I grow high value things. I, I have a pretty good handle on what's going on, except in this one place uh, now. So I only do every, every year. But if I have a high demand crop on a low CEC soil, I'm testing every six months and I'm doing leaf analysis on top of that because I need to make sure that everything's made available to that crop that you need to. So it, it varies. Um, but I encourage people for the first couple, three years to take a, a test every year. And then I, there's usually criteria to how many different ones you need to take. And that has to do with topography and soil color. And because that usually there's indications was somebody fertilizing it before in this area or not. There's some, I usually, if I'm working with somebody with, with uh, consulting, I usually, I have an instruction sheet that I give them. Uh, and there's a tutorial on how to take a good sample this, off of Kinsey Ag's website. Uh, it's easier for you to go there and do that because you may need to read it three or four times before you get everything out of it you need to. And if you need me to tell you that over the phone three or four times, it, it can get time consuming. So it's just easier to do it that way because you can go back and review whatever parts of it you're not, you're not sure about. So, so that's, that's kind of the way I work it. So depends on how valuable it is to you and how critical the information needs to come at what, you know, what interval as to how often you would do it. I also recommend that additional tests be done um, then a standard test, uh, like for cobalt and molybdenum, because if you actually want to get to a fully natural growing system, cobalt and molybdenum are critical for, uh, cobalt is the center atom in B12. So if you want to be, uh, only plant-based in your diet, then you really better be sure that you've got cobalt in your soil so that that B12 is made available. Now people will argue with me and please don't go out of here and say, oh, I don't, Whitmark told him that I didn't have to take B12 as a supplement anymore or eat animal products because this is a very, it's a very dangerous condition if you don't have it. Uh, and I'm actually going to probably talk about that. It's a condition that nobody saw. Everything looked wonderful here in, in parts of Australia and in New Zealand where cobalt was just naturally deficient in the soil. And everything looked wonderful. And the livestock were consuming the grass and everything and they were dying because there was no cobalt. So there was no B12. Much of Australia, it's really deficient in molly as well. Yeah, and so you know you learn those things depending on you know the different soil types, the parent materials. Um, so cobalt is important for the natural nitrogen fixers as well. They have to have cobalt, and then molybdenum is also critical for natural nitrogen fixing. Both the free living nitrogen fixers and the, the, the symbiotic ones, the ones that are symbiotic with legumes that most people know about, but they don't. Most people don't realize that there's a lot of free living 
nitrogen fixers in the soil that don't have to have that relationship with the legume. Um, and so if your goal is, you should actually be able to get to the place where you do not have to apply a single pound of nitrogen to your ground. That system should know what's required and the plants tell the microbes in the soil, I need this, and they go about the, the, the interaction, um, they go about providing what's, what's needed. Um, <clears throat> yeah? Molybdenum, molybdenum, M-O-L-Y-B-D-E-N-U-M, N-U-M, molybdenum. Um, it's not something you have to do every single year because once you know what the, that state is, you can address it over the next two or three years and build it, and then you should probably take a test again just to see where you are. But one of the interesting things, not, I'll say most of this to when we get to the trace elements, once you restore some of these things, you may not touch them for again for another 20 years um, because so little of it is consumed. But if you don't have it in certain levels, it's not optimized in its availability for, you know, for maximum growth. Um, but you know, that's not true with most of the major elements because you're pulling a lot out. And if you're, if you're taking it away, it has to be given back. Um, but most of the trace elements, once you get it replenished, I mean, you won't, it comes, a lot of them come in the standard analysis, but, you know, it, it's, there's not going to be significant movement in those after you get them restored, so, you know, you don't need to worry about them as much. But you've got to get them back to where they need to be. Um, so did that answer the question satisfactorily? Does anybody else have any question about that? It's usually better to go into more specifics with individual con situations uh, so what, you, what would be the best approach to it? Because I, like I said, I have people say, well, I should probably take 10 different samples. And so I ask them the questions like, well, what's the topography like? Um, what's the color of the soil like? What, is, what do you see growing there naturally? Is there a significant difference in the weeds growing here as opposed to the weeds growing here? I said that's an indication that there's a difference and that you should do it. But the least amount of samples you have to take, the least amount of money you have to invest, but you don't want to oversimplify it and not have enough adequate, you know, good information to be able to, to address what your needs are, your conditions are. Uh, the second part of that question was, you know, how far apart we take, so not, not time-wise, but... Oh, but distance. Yeah, yeah okay. Um, again, I had, I had a 20,000 square foot. What is that? Somebody told me what that was. Uh, I don't know, square meters, but uh, it was... Anyway, it's a big greenhouse. Um, but it was, it was a half acre, so I don't have that. But I took 10 tests, 10 different samples out of that because I was growing you know, really intensively in there and I was moving stuff around. Um, and so I needed to know, you know where everything was. Um, but you can go all the way up to, if you're growing, if you got 100 acres, you can go all the way up to as much as you know, 10 to 20 acres and take one sample from that if it's consistent. Uh, so that varies too. It's, it's dependent on the conditions you're trying to, what you're trying to achieve. Um, so the least amount of samples you have to take to get the best information is, is the way I usually approach it. It's always best. That's why I said sometimes it takes two or three years to really get a good picture of what you know it actually is, because there is variability in, in a field. Some fields are more than others, but. Uh, you're trying to eliminate that variability as much as possible. So what I do is I, I usually try to take the sample from as close to the same places as I did before, but unless you mark them, I mean, it's really hard to get it exactly the same place. Uh, uh, and last question, are there any standard tests 
Um, there are no, honestly, there are no standard off-the-shelf tests that, that generate reliable information. And, and some of the methodology that's in those tests, actually some labs use, and the information is, is unreliable from them too. Uh, but people want cheap and quick. It's just like a lot of things in life. You know, we want it cheap and we want it fast, and, and uh, uh, we cater to that. <laughs> so I don't, but, you know, they, they test, the soil testing industry does. And so we'll, we'll talk about a little bit. There is only one lab. Let me just say this. There's only one lab left in the world that, that um, actually runs the, what I consider the correct analytical and interpretive protocols. And the reason I say that is not because there's not a lot of labs that run cation exchange analysis. They base it on cation exchange and they run it. But what they're doing is they're, they're running it in a different way. They're using different analytical methods. They're using different extractives. Uh, and, and so the numbers that they reach, that they get, are different. And then they try to match it to the numbers that Dr. Albrecht developed using very specific analytical and interpretive protocols. And if you do that, you're never going to hit the target. And so it's not about the lab being incompetent. They're just using a different methodology. Like, you know, a huge number of labs today use what's called the Malik 3 uh, universal extractive method, where they're using a universal extractive instead of very specific tests for different um, components of that soil analysis. Um, it's cheaper, it's faster, but uh, the, the lab that I use, they actually, I was sharing with somebody this morning, they actually run it both ways. They run it for Kinsey Ag, the way Albrecht had it run, and has been doing that for, for decades now. Um, but they also run it the other way everybody else runs it. And more of their samples are done the way everybody else does it. So I asked the owner of the lab, Bob Perry, I said, Bob, I said, are those numbers reliable? Guess what his answer was? No. Here's the lab owner who runs the analysis, and he said, no, the numbers are not reliable. And so then my next question was, well, why do you do it? And here was his answer, because that's what they want. That's what the universities want. That's what the, the fertilizer companies want. And it comes down to people want it, they want it fast, they want it cheap, and they want to be like everybody else. And so the vast majority of what's available to you while they're running cation exchange, they're running a different protocol. And if, if you have somebody that understands what those numbers mean in relation to the, the numbers that Dr. Albrecht developed, then they could probably do just fine, you, just, you do well with a person like that. So I'm not saying you couldn't utilize those labs and utilize somebody. I don't know, um, I've looked at different labs, I've talked to Neil about it, and he showed me some of the numbers. They've been doing some correlations between it. And so we're gonna look at calcium here in just a minute. Uh, with Dr. Albrecht, it was, it was, you know, in the mainstream of CECs, it would be 68% saturation of calcium. We're gonna talk about this in just a minute, so don't worry about that. And 12% saturation of magnesium, and there's a reason for that. Neil told me that it said on, and I won't share the labs because I'm, I'm not trying to, you know, be negative towards any particular lab or anything like that. But he said in one lab, when it comes up 68 with, uh, with Albrecht's protocol, with one lab, it comes up at 60. With another lab, it comes up at 72. And with one, another one, it comes up at 80. The, the, it wasn't incompetence in the way that the, the, the analytical methods were applied. It said the, the, the numbers that come out from that analytical process are different. And I, don't, I mean, I'd really lose you if I started going into why that happens. Uh, but there's reasons why that happens. And so 
let's say that you're using a lab and their 68, which is ideal, comes up at 80 and you try to hit 68. You, you do your recommendation or you, you, you determine what you're going to need to apply based on, I'm at 80, I need to get to 68. What happens when you wind up at 68? You're deficient. Let's look at it the other way. If, what, if it, what if you need 68 and the lab says it's 60 and you try to use the, the numbers from Dr. Albrecht's work and you try to get to 68? Well, now you're excessive. Do you understand what I'm saying about this? So it's not a matter of competence of a lab. It's a matter of they're just using different, they're using different analytical protocols and they're trying to match it to a set of, a set of numbers that were established under totally different protocols. And it just creates confusion. And, and, it, and, and a, a lot of the negative input that people give towards the Albrecht approach, the cation exchange model, is based on this. Because people do that and they say, oh, it didn't work. It, it's just, I had just as many problems I had before. Well, because they were using the problem. They were trying to match apples with oranges and it, and it so doesn't work. So this has been a here, because all this hinges down to the measures, right? To getting the biggest right and all the rest of it. So what are those um, percentages for those? We're going to really talk about it. Right. Now we need to know how we're going to achieve that credit. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, we're going to talk about those two things. Um, and the question was, is there a lab in Australia? There was a lab in Australia. I don't know if anybody's familiar with SWEPS. Um, it was actually started by Perry Labs out of the U.S. because so much, Kinsiac does so much work in the Southern Hemisphere, particularly in Australia and New Zealand, that they were hoping to, to have a lab you know, out here so they didn't have to take so much time to send it all the way to the States. You know, more time is consumed in, in getting the soil samples shipped to the US and having the, the, the analysis done and gotten back to you than it takes to just do the analysis. Um, so if there was a lab closer, but unfortunately, they just chose to go a different way. And so now they're running stuff that's not, it's not, you know, consistent with. It's it's S W E P E S, S W E P E. There's no H. It's just S W E P E S. What's the name of the one in the states? Well, Perry Labs is is the one that I use, but it has to go through Kinsiag, because all the other samples they do they do for like everybody else does them, because that's what they want. Kinsey Lab. Kinsey Ag Services. Kinseyag.com is the, the site. Um, and you, you, can, you can go through them. Um, I can also help you do this. Now, I'm not advertising for myself here. The only, I don't care what you do. Um, the differences would be, it's gonna take about three to four weeks in turnaround time from the time they receive the sample for Kinseyag to get the, the information back to you because they work all over the world. They, have, they work in 85 countries. They work on every continent in the, in the world, um, and they work in all 50 states in the U.S. And they're busy, you know, the, you know, like right now you're going in the summer, and so they're really busy working with growers down here in the Southern Hemisphere, in South America, and in Australia, New Zealand, uh, and Southern Africa. Uh, they're working with all of those growers now in their spring and their fall, and then they're going to jump, and they're going to have to jump around and, and start working with the northern hemisphere and so it takes them about three to four weeks to get a response back to you it takes me about 10 days it takes me about 10 days to two weeks because it's not it's not bottlenecked in that large large volume of stuff it does cost a little bit more to do it 
through me because I have to pay Kinziag a little bit for them processing, you know, handling all the samples. I would be happy to go into Perry, but there's, you know, straight in and not have to worry about that. But um, there's kind of a guarding of the, of the process that's going on. And my only way to get it done is that way. And I don't say that in disrespect to Neil or Kinziag because they're wonderful people um, and they are having to handle what they're trying to do is they're trying to protect the process because it's been compromised everywhere else. And this is the last bastion of, you know, what would be ideal is if we as Adventists had our own, pro, you know, whole, you know, vertically inter integrated structure. We should have as many agronomists helping in districts as we do pastors, you know, helping people to, to, to learn this knowledge. But we don't have any of that. And maybe one day we will. That would be wonderful if we did where we had a little more flexibility on it. But we don't right now, this is our only option. Um, so, so that's, it's up to you what you wanna do. I, I'm not telling you you can't use those other labs, but please find somebody that knows what those numbers mean. They really honestly know what they mean. And I haven't found very many people, they try to match it to the other, and then they just give it up. They say, uh, the, and you get all kinds of, you get all kinds of arguments like, well, you, it really is not that big of a deal, and it's really not that important. You start hearing all this stuff is when it doesn't work the way it's supposed to work and everything. Well, then and now it doesn't matter. It's not important, but it is still important. It's, it's How do you spell that? K-I-N-S-E-Y and then A-G. So Kinseyag.com. You can get to their website. It's not very user-friendly. So S-E-Y. Yeah. K-I-N-S-E-Y. A-G. A-G. com. Uh, it's not, they need to get a different uh, guy to develop their website. It's not very user friendly. But, uh, Who do we need to talk to to get through to Well, you can go through their website um, and they can send you information. If you want to call them, they have a phone number on there. So. I thought you said, yeah, unless you guys research and such, you kind of get the wrong. Well, you need to go through Kinsey Ag. If you want the, the right Albrecht modeling, you know, soil analysis done, you've got to go through them. I mean, there is there are a couple of consultants here in Australia, and I, I can't remember the other guy's name, but um, Peter Norwood is one of them, who's very good at what he does, um, and he works with Kinziag, and so you could talk to him. Um, and I was just saying that I can I can do it as well. It's all a matter of your priority. It, it turns it around faster. It costs a little bit more. Usually, get more back and forth with me because they just don't have the time to, to spend on the phone with you. I try to help people understand what's going on as much as I can. Um, so that's another option. So it's, it's up to you. If you've got the time to wait, it costs a little bit less, you get just as good of a recommendation from them as you would from me. So it doesn't really matter to me. It's just a matter of making sure you're getting good information. You want good information, however, however you choose to do it. So, okay, did that answer the questions now? Um, we got a timekeeper going who? 25 minutes to be Okay, so we need to move along here. So what I need to do, I just put this soil, this, this is a soil recommendation for, for the Dye Singers farm. Um, I think it's their high tunnel. You see I put the little question mark there because he neglected to tell me what, which one it was. But I think H4 is, is one of their high tunnels on it. So I, I just wanted to use this to go through some of the terms that you need to understand. We've talked about cation exchange capacity. Um, on here you see total exchange capacity. The reason for that is is because this is another problem with the other labs. If you do not run all the cations in the, in the process of calculating exchange capacity, the number will not be right. And everything else you calculate from it won't be right. So some labs will leave out. So 
Um, in order to define that, you have to measure the major cations, calcium, magnesium, potassium, and sodium. Some labs will not measure sodium. They won't bother. The number doesn't come out the same. Some lab, and then you also have to include what's called other bases. It's really not other bases, it's a misnomer. It should be other cations because some of them are, are acid forming, particularly aluminum is an acid forming cation, it's not a base. But they, they've used the term other bases here, you see? So you'll see on this where, where these are measured in what's called base saturation. I'll get to that in just a second. Um, but you have to measure all four of these. You have to know what this number is here and you have to know what the exchangeable hydrogen is. And there are formulas that are worked out to know how to figure out what those are based on the pH and then that starts them rolling into how to figure out what the exchange capacity is. But what this means by total exchange capacity is everything that affects the, the exchange capacity was utilized in calculating that number. Uh, whereas a lot of other labs, they won't use the other, this variable here. They won't include that. They won't include sodium. And this number just winds up being different. So that's the only reason it says total exchange capacity there rather than just cation exchange capacity. It's measuring the, the, the entirety of the cations that affect the exchange capacity. So your number that you get is accurate. So on this one, particular one here, it says 9.57. What that means, it, basically the way I illustrate this, and usually if, if I'm traveling, I bring the buckets with me, but I bring different size buckets. It's about just to look at it as buckets. How big of a bucket does that soil have? How much fertility can that soil hold? That's really what you're measuring. You're measuring it in charges, but it's, it's really, if you just like, is it a one gallon bucket? Is it a five gallon bucket? What would happen, and why it's important is, what would happen if you had a five gallon bucket, your soil, the CEC was a five gallon bucket, and you only applied one gallon worth of fertility? You think you would get everything out of that soil that it should be get, you should be getting out of it? No, everything would actually be really deficient and things wouldn't grow very well. Um, and if, if you had, let's say you had a two gallon bucket, I guess you should be saying liters here. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, so let's say you have a two liter bucket and you try to put four liters of fertility on that. What's gonna happen then? Well, you're gonna overload everything. You're gonna waste your money because you're gonna spend money that you shouldn't have spent. And then you're gonna have to spend money probably trying to get the stuff out you put on that you wasted money putting on. And so it's really important you know the capacity of that soil. So then you can determine what is actually needed to fully fill that capacity. Am I, are you following me on that? You know, I'm trying to take this term, which could be a little bit ambiguous, and give you some, some kind of perspective. So it's a, it's the size of the bucket. It's really just the capacity of that soil to hold that fertility. Yeah. So just the exchange capacity um, on that water above here in the client, you're talking about the exchange of the ions, um, cat ions with the hydrogen from the plants. Is that what you mean? No, it, it's the capacity of that soil to do that exchanging. So actually the, the capacity is filled with, in this particular case, 24% um, of that bucket is filled with exchangeable hydrogen. 6% of that bucket is filled with other cations. It's, they use the term other bases. I wish they would change that because it's really other cations. Um, they're not all bases, some are very acid. So 6% of the bucket is filled with that. A quarter of a percent of the bucket is filled with sodium, has sodium in it. 6.86% of the bucket has potassium. 9.71% of the bucket has magnesium. And 53.19% 
it has is calcium. Um, if you look at these numbers, these are the desired numbers over here, by the way. And there's some variability there because depending on the type of soil you have, the CEC, when you get down into lower CECs, then you cannot hold enough magnesium there, the minimum amount of magnesium. And so you have to start, you see I have 6812 here as the desired one in this particular CEC. But when you go down below, and don't get mixed up with the numbers here because I could lose you on the numbers, but if you were to go below, if your bucket was only a, an 8.67, it was that small of a bucket, now you're gonna have to start changing this, this proportion because you cannot maintain it's basically 250 pounds of magnesium there. And then you can actually go down into even lower ones until you can't even hold enough there. And then you work it down, you work it down until you a minimum of 200, and then you have to go over 100%. You have to overfill the bucket in order to, when you get down into those really low CEC soils. Anyway, I don't wanna spend a lot of time on that because you guys are just gonna be saying, what did he just say? Um, if I get too much into that. But did, did, did that answer the question or? Yeah, the difference is a lot of labs will use the term cation exchange capacity and they'll give you a number for it, but they didn't include all of these, particularly sodium and, and the other bases. They don't measure those. And so the number they give you is not going to be the total exchange capacity. It's going to be different. Yeah, basically it's just... Yeah, I mean, this is CEC, but it's the total CEC. It's just to emphasize the fact that everything is actually measured. Yeah, it's just the emphasis you have it in there for. It is the cation exchange capacity, but it's the total cation exchange They had to do this. We had to do this because other labs were just dropped and stopped doing these. And people were getting the idea that that was the total exchange capacity, and it wasn't. And this, again, was causing people to be thrown off and they were, when they were determining how much material they should apply to try to get to a, a complete and balanced state, it was, it was inaccurate and it wasn't working. And they were saying, oh, well, the Albrecht model doesn't work because there's a lot of pitfalls and, and a lot of things you have to be mindful of. So I'm, I'm just trying to communicate here that, um, that that's why that's there in order to, to tell you, yes, this is the total exchange capacity of that soil. Okay, now this is not, uh, this is not measuring, this is not measuring you know, the capacity of the organic matter, its ability to hold positively charged anions. It's only looking, because the, the humus actually has a charge to it as well. And this is one way to build capacity. It doesn't rapidly build because it, you know, relative to the quantity of clay, it doesn't, there's not that much, but humus actually has 32 times the capacity for charge um, that clay does. And so the organic matter has you know, much larger capacity to, to hold cation nutrients. It's just that per volume, it's not that significant. But you can increase it some doing that. Um, okay, so do, do, are we all in the same place here now, more or less? Um, so this, this here, base saturation, you'll see this base saturation percent. They use the term base again because these are, these are alkaline-forming cations, largely. They're really not all that, but I don't want to confuse you too much because they're using the wrong terminology here. Um, what this is, is telling you is um, what percentage of your bucket or your exchange capacity is actually filled with these elements. That's all it's, that's all it's telling you. 53.19% of my bucket of 
exchange capacity is filled with calcium. That's, that's all it's telling you. And so if you look up here, what's your desired range? And this is determined here, you'll see is 6812. So 60 to 70% for calcium. So you're short. Does everybody see that, that you're short? Well, you should, be, you should have 68% of that bucket filled with calcium and you only have 53 plus percent filled with calcium. So you've got to fill, you got to get that, that other 15% um, filled with calcium. Oh, I'm sorry, not 15%. Uh, yeah, 15%. Um, and on, on down the line, okay? And I, the range is here. This uh, magnesium is the same way. Uh, it adjusts with that, and it's about. We're going to get into that when we get to the calcium. As soon as I get out of here, we'll we'll we'll, we'll explain this a little bit more. Um, potassium has to do with this is like the bare minimum. That's actually deficiency. I should take that off of there. That's the range they allow for. Um, but I usually run it about seven percent, especially if you have woody crops. And we'll get that with potassium when we get to there. You want to run at a higher because it requires a lot more potassium. So you want to run at a higher range than the others. Um, sodium, let me leave that to, to doing those. So I just wanted to define that because that's what we're talking about. We're talking about how big is the bucket and what should be in the bucket. So what's your desired value? What you'll see down here, like I'm on one, oh, can't do it on there. I'll just go down to some of these. Yeah, I don't know if, if uh, if John wants you to see this, this highlighted yellow, but let, let me just say this. Um, I've seen, I've worked with thousands of soil tests. I've seen thousands of soil tests from all over the world. And I can assure you of one thing. There is not one righteous, not one. <laughs> so, um, so forget about worrying about somebody. You know, all it really matters to you is what is my condition? Um, so I don't think John would be embarrassed by the fact that, uh, what the, what this tells you is, is in his particular case, he's on a, a rock phosphate ore body, you know, a, a reactive phosphate ore body. Um, we've got calcium down where he actually overused it and we have to put some more on, but it's calcium phosphate. And so he's excessive, you know, on all of his land with phosphate and he's not going to bring it down. He's not going to bring it down. I mean, he's got so much of it there. The best we do now is, is, is to bring everything else up that is suppressing, bring everything else up to the optimum level we can get it at. And don't do anything, see I put up here, should not apply anything with phosphorus in it. Don't do anything to exa you know, exasperate that condition any more than it already is. But, you know, every soil I've ever looked at has need. It's not it's not complete, it's not balanced. So it's just a matter of what are the particular needs for that particular soil. Just like it's what are the particular needs of the condition of my character in relation to the standard on it. And, and, and what we usually do is we look at what was actually found, how much was in the bucket, and then what's the desired value? How much do we want to be in the bucket? Um, I don't, we're not gonna have time to do this class, but I do test a class on soil tests where we go through, I'll just give you in generalizations, um, what you should expect from a soil test, what information you should get from a soil test. They should be able to tell you what your desired value is. And they should then be able to also be able to tell you what value they found. And as a result, if you just taken, you just add or subtract the numbers, then you know this is in pounds per acre, so let's just take calcium. The deficit was 567 pounds. Then you go 
Um, and you'll see I, there's two recommendations here, one for high calcium lime and dolomitic lime. We'll talk about that in just a second. Why both instead of just one? Um, you know how much you need to supply. Okay, where are the materials I'm going to use to supply that? It's that simple. You know, once you, you, know, you get good information, it's just a matter of how do I, how do I supply that? Um, and, you know, on down, on down through here. There are, there are interactions that are going on here that you have to know about. Um, and that's why the double, the two different types of lime here. Uh, the last thing I want to do about this, and we're going to move to calcium and magnesium here. We're going to start looking at these nutrient elements. Um, is pH. Does everybody know what I'm talking about when I say the word, P, when I say the term pH? What does it mean? It's, it, the P stands for percent and the H is for hydrogen. So all it is is a measure of exchangeable hydrogen. The percentage of exchangeable hydrogen uh, is what it's telling you. Oh, I keep doing that up there. <laughs> um, in this particular case, the, the, the pH is 5.7. Um, what is it not telling you? Can anybody think about what it's not telling you? Okay, if you have, if your desired range is 10 to 15 percent and you've got 24 percent exchangeable hydrogen based on this pH, what is it telling, and look at these other numbers here. You're supposed to have 68 here, you're supposed to have 12 here. It's just telling you how much exchangeable hydrogen it is, but it's all, what, it, what it's actually telling you is that you're missing nutritive cations. Something is missing. You got too much exchangeable hydrogen there, so something else is missing. Well, which one is it? I deal with growers all the time, and I tell you, this is one of the biggest obstacles to people doing, doing well. People just want to adjust the pH because pH does affect the availability of different nutrients at a certain range. But believe it or not, when you adjust everything to a, its balanced state, the pH lands right where you want it. You don't have to worry about it. It lands right where you want it because you supplied everything the way it's supposed to be. So forget the pH in respect to that. Um, it does matter if you know, you're short, let's say you're short iron and you got a high pH and you need, your crop you're growing needs iron. Well, you would be sure and apply some source of iron to address the conditions as they are while you're trying to bring that pH down because you're actually, in that case, you have too many cations. You have too many of them and you gotta get rid of some of them. So, um, but grower, growers will just put stuff on to adjust the pH and they don't pick, is it high calcium lime that they need? Is it dolomitic lime that they need? Do they need just calcium? Do they need potassium and calcium? I mean, uh, magnesium and calcium? It'll determine which lime you, you apply. And they just put it on to address the pH. And they get themselves in trouble depending on what kind of limestone quarries they have in the area. They, they wind up uh, getting excessive calcium or excessive magnesium uh, in their system. But their pH looks great. But stuff doesn't grow well because there's more at play here than just the pH on it. Okay, that's probably about as much as we, you know, I do classes on this where it goes into a lot more detail on this, but it's beyond the scope of this class. And it'll, all it'll do is just confuse you if I... We start adding a lot of math in here to, to, to try to calculate out things. The idea is just that the reality, you need to know the capacity of the soil. How big is the bucket? And then what should that bucket be filled with? And what is the bucket filled with? And then you make the adjustments to fill the bucket the way it's supposed to be filled on it. Okay? Are we clear as mud again? <laughs> yeah. What does that um, totally, the exchange capacity number represent? Is there something to aim for there? 
Um, well, this is uh, the question was, what does that number mean? You know, what does it represent? It, it, you know, the, the simplest way to say it is that it represents the capacity of the soil. To, it's a charge capacity of that soil. Uh, and I'm trying to avoid the math because if I start talking about this math, um, you know, it's just, I'm going to lose the majority of the people in the class. Not because you're incapable of learning it, it's just because until you're familiar with this, it, it's, it's, it's based on milliequivalents of hydrogen. And, you know, let me just leave it at that. But it, in essence, just the simplest way to say it is it's, it's based on the, the charge capacity of that soil. And it's how they measure it, uh, and it, and it comes out that way. If I go too far on it, um, then I'll have to answer 10 more questions because I answered that question. And then that 10 will ask me, require another 10 for each of those 10. Um, and we're already, we're already probably behind here. Um, is that sufficient? Yeah, you can go ask Ian here. He can tell you all about, you know, how they do it. Or I can show you, I've got a, you know, I've got the, you know, the, the, uh, the formulas, the way that they, they figure it out. They just figured out how to do the, the math to, to represent that charge capacity in the soil, or the, the bucket size of the soil. So is there a, a good or a bad direction on that number? You can't, see, this is like people, um, you can't really, you're not gonna change this significantly. Now, having said that, I'm changing one of my, my high tunnel soils significantly. And um, in general, uh, you won't change that number significantly. You can increase it some. You can actually decrease it by doing damage too. But it doesn't move very, you know, in big movements. Um, when it does move, it's, it's a matter of re reconstructing damaged clays and increasing humus levels again back to what they should be. Um, but there's no, this is one of those things you kind of, that's the kind of soil you have. That's its capacity. And then you look at what ways could I increase that? But you're not going to go from like 9.57 to 15 or something like that. It's, 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 it's the capacity. It's like, it's like the parable of the talents. We start with a certain capacity. And there are ways to increase that. Um, but again, it's probably, it's a lot of technicality. Even a lot of people that understand it at my level um, don't really understand how that all works. Five minutes. Okay. Um, didn't plan on that. Okay, so did we just kind of have a picture of what we're actually talking about here? We're just trying to, you know, understand how, you know, what is it that we're trying to fill? I mean, what, what capacity is it and what should it be in there? What should we fill it with? If you don't know that, well, then you're just guessing. Again, you're just throwing stuff at the problem, trying to figure out what the, the solution is on it. Okay, um, let me see if I can see if we can get a little bit of this one done. Okay, so now we're gonna, um, we're kind of, kind of, we're gonna, I usually separate these out because it, there's a lot of detail to it, but I, I can't do that. Um, you'll see on this, it's titled calcium, magnesium, and tillage. So we're gonna address that part of it and then we'll move to the, the, the nutritive part of it. Remember the model had airspace, another term is porosity. That is influenced by the, the, what's called the soil texture in one way. In other words, how much sand, silt, and clay you have in that soil. Um, the way to change that is not to haul in dump truck loads of clay or sand or something, because actually what you'll make is, is uh, cement blocks is usually what the result is of doing that. Trying to change the texture of the soil is not what you want to achieve. What you want to do is change the structure 
of that soil. In other words, you want to get that ideal mo that model. You want 50% of that volume as pore space, as air, and then half of that filled with water. Um, we'll get to the details on that when we get to the, the air and the water. Um, how do you do that? What if you have a heavy soil that doesn't have the right pore space in it? What do you do? What if you have a sandy soil, a really sandy soil, and you have too much air in that soil? How do you correct that? And you see, I have tillage up here. We need to address tillage, and I don't know if we'll get to that. But uh, we need to address the, have you, any of you heard the, the spirit of prophecy statement about plowing often and plowing deep? You know what we always add to that that's not there? What do we always assume it is? When, when, when that says plow often and plow deep, what, what do you assume it's saying? To hook up the plow, the iron, behind the tractor and plow that ground. But that's not part of what's said there. And we're going we're gonna to talk about how, what, you're, what are you trying to do with tillage? Let's just put it that way. What are you trying to do? Well, you might be trying to incorporate residues, um, but a lot of the cases you're trying to get air in the soil. Well, what if you have a sandy soil and you don't want any more air in there? Um, and we're going to see uh, how calcium and magnesium not only are nutritive elements, they're structural elements. And we're going to look at that in just a minute here. I'm probably out of time. Um, so we'll pick, it, we'll pick it up from there. But the way, the chemodynamics of calcium and magnesium, just the atom itself, interacts with that, those exchange sites, those charge sites, in different ways. Uh, we're going to look at it in a minute here. So your, your objective is you don't need to go out, hook the plow up, and exercise the tractor in the plow just to say you did it. You have an objective to achieve. You want air in that soil. You want residue breakdown. So, but the assumption is made that you have to hook the plow up and go out there and pull it. What about tiller radishes or alfalfa? Amen. Or um, calcium or magnesium? My time up. Okay, let's stop. And we'll look at, we're going to look at this in a little more detail. And then we'll start moving through. We're going to have to go through it fairly quickly to look at all the nutritive elements here, the major elements, the trace elements. But this is the more important part of it right here that we need to get, to get covered. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.